Well, don't you see, he had done something. He had steered. For months I had him at my back. I help an instrument. It was a kind of partnership. He steered for me. I had to look after him. I worried about his deficiencies, and thus a subtle bond had been created, of which I only became aware when it was suddenly broken, and the intimate profundity of that look he gave me when he received his hurt remains to this day in my memory, like a claim of distant kinship affirmed in a supreme moment. That's wonderful. That's an important moment. A claim of distant kinship affirmed. Yes. that This is the brightest moment of the book. It, you could be right about that. Yeah. Um, is it bright enough? Hi, everyone. Today, Claire and I will talk about Joseph Conrad's novella, Heart of Darkness. For the quote of the day, I'd like to use Joseph Conrad's own description of the work of fiction. In 1897, he wrote, A work that aspires, however humbly, to the condition of art, should carry its justification in every line. And art itself may be defined as a single-minded attempt to render the highest kind of justice to the visible universe by bringing to light the truth, manifold and one, underlying its every aspect. It is an attempt to find in its forms, in its colors, in its light, in its shadows, in its aspects of matter and in the facts of life, what of each is fundamental, what is enduring and essential, their one illuminating and convincing quality, the very truth of their existence. The artist then, like the thinker or scientist, seeks the truth and makes his appeal. And for a discussion on the possibility of finding truth and for many other things, let's go into that chat about Heart of Darkness with me and Claire. So, uh, you liked this book? Yeah, I liked it a lot. I have tried to read this book several times in my life. Definitely didn't read it when I was supposed to. <laughs> in high school? Yeah. Like many other books. <laughs> yeah. But honestly, I'm okay with that because I wasn't ready to read it those other times when I attempted it. I wasn't connecting with it and didn't it didn't make sense to me at the time. Emotionally, I guess. I feel like my 30s have been a great time for reading a lot of these books. Anyway, so this time... Um, well, wait just a minute. We don't, yeah. have, we don't really have time to talk about that, but it's slightly too interesting to ignore. What do we do about the fact that most of these great books are assigned to young adults, late teens, early 20s, and high school and university? And I was obsessed with reading as a teenager and as a university student. Mm. But even I couldn't bring myself to pay attention to every text that was assigned. You know, I remember mm. skipping all kinds of stuff just because I just couldn't, I wasn't interested. I couldn't be bothered. So, right. if even someone who has already fallen in love with reading isn't going to be reading these when they're assigned, what what, do, what is that? I'm now asking you to like revolutionize education. Should we stop assigning Conrad and Shakespeare? No, I don't think so. To young people? I don't think so, but I think uh, it should be approached in a different way. You know, instead of telling young students that right. they need to now understand this and fully understand the weight of it, and you know, <laughs> or that this is this is an important work in an uh, an epoch of history called literary modernism. Literary modernism began in 1892 right. when right. you know all of that's just in instant death. Right. Instead, like maybe guide students 
into the places that they can relate to at that stage in their life, or maybe, you know, explain that there might, there, there's going to be a lot that won't make sense to them. Yeah. Um, and to just approach, to approach these texts like, um, that they get to pick and choose what they connect with and that it's okay not to fully make sense of everything. But that there will be something about them in this book. Yes. I mean, you're a professor. How do you deal with this problem? Well, I, that's what I try to convince my students of, that all of these masterpieces are about them. And that they get more than one chance to connect with it throughout their lives. Yeah, Harold Bloom says, there is no such thing as reading, there is only rereading. I really like that. I like that too. And I, I don't want to sound like one of those experience snobs, but a certain amount of life experience does matter. Hmm. Anyway, we should get into it. Speaking of youth and life experience... Yeah. When I was a child, we had this piano. I don't know where my parents got it from, but its keys were made of ivory. I always wondered where this ivory came from. I mean, I know where ivory comes from, but I always imagined the elephants and how these elephants were found and killed. And Maybe as I grew, an old it, elephant laid down peacefully yeah, to die. Yeah, I just became slightly <laughs> suspicious. This can't be a sustainable practice. And it was quite an old piano, and the, the keys would kind of chip away, and we couldn't. Ivory is expensive. We didn't really repair them. Wasn't that piano in your mom's house? Doesn't that have ivory keys? Mm -hmm. So I'm rem I was reminded of this detail at the very end of this novella when Marlo walks into the intended's home, house, room. Mm. There's a piano there. Oh wow! I didn't that realize described that. Described our attention is drawn to this piano as a reminder that the whole reason for Belgium colonizing the Congo is to strip it of its precious resources. It's primary one being ivory. Mm. So the intended, I'm jumping now to the end, but the intended thinks that she can, or Marlo rather, thinks that he can shelter her from what's happening over there. But these worlds intertwine. There's no border between these worlds, mm -hmm. the Congo and England or Belgium. Um, we're not really going to talk about colonialism. Yeah, you know, I, I actually thought race was going to be a bigger part of the novel, but honestly, I don't think it is even at the no. forefront. It's really marginal, which sounds strange because of its setting. Yeah. Chinua Achebe, you know, the African novelist of Things Fall Apart, he gave this famous address in which he accused Conrad of being a racist and this novel of being, a, of being racist, mm. exhorted his audience to never read it and to stop teaching it. Um, I think his main objection is that it reduces Africa as a mere backdrop to a European man's downfall. Hmm. Which I'm not going to say it doesn't. I suppose it does. But it's not just that or not even mostly that. Mm. To reduce our discussion of this novel to colonialism is simply would be reductive. It would be exactly that reductive. Mm. It's about the nature of truth. It's about the source of human meaning, human evil, mm. the darkness at the heart of every human. Yeah, it would you know? be hugely reductive. It goes deeper than skin deep, a lot deeper. Oh, yeah. Think about, imagine what the average British citizen was expecting or wants to get from stories like this, you know, stories of white triumph. It's what they would want. Mm. 1902, this book was published in 1902. So that's all his audience is going to expect, that this is going to be a story of white people going out there and civilizing a, a quote-unquote savage race and a quote-unquote savage place. Having noble adventures. Having noble adventures and being nothing but noble and upright. Yeah. This story couldn't be farther from that expectation. Oh yeah, I kept wanting to Marlo to be to be wise to be to learn something huge to 
have come away with some great insights about the whole experience. But he he was very naive and ended up falling for all the same things yeah. as Kurtz in many ways. Right. Yeah, we'll talk about that. He's, he's yeah. absolutely not this kind of cartoonish Boy Scout enlightenment no. um, hero. No. This novel makes it clear on every page that colonialism corrupts the colonizer. Mm. in addition to destroying the colonized. It was a strange book in that way, too, that there was no admirable character. I suppose not. Um, Every heart in this book is dark in some way. Yes. So, this isn't really about colonialism, and we're going to kind of stop talking about this topic now and move on to its more universal and trans-historical value. And like I say, I think this novel has something important to tell us about the nature of truth, the nature of meaning, where humans find value in the world where evil comes from. And it is about humans. It's about young adults in high school. It's about college students, but it's about all of us. We don't go to Africa, you know, and, and loot it for its riches. Well, actually, some of us still are. Mm-hmm. Sadly, that's, of course, still going on. But for average people, maybe we're disillusioned with our own culture or our own religion or our own family. So, we go on some kind of grand romantic adventure mm-hmm. in search of another mm-hmm. and find that maybe what we are seeking is as empty or corrupt or flawed as what we've left. So, we ping pong back and forth between different darknesses looking for light. Mm. And one thing we'll get to, and maybe this is one thing you and I disagree on, is if this book proposes or contains any sources of light. I'm not sure it does. You think it might? It does. There's a glimpse. There's a couple of glimpses. Um, Okay, well, let's save those. Let's save those glimpses. But even if we disagree, I think that'll be good too, because it will highlight... Um, the way in which a great text can create contradictory but equally true and valid reactions in different readers. Mm-hmm. You know, we're, we're certainly not going to quote unquote solve or explain this book. Oh, this is this is one of the most complicated books I've ever read. Well, the, well, yeah, I know what you mean. One of the most distilled. Like every page deserves heavy underlining, heavy, heavy underlining. Well, yeah, but even. Even just when it comes to what what's the argument, what's the message, yeah. it's like, this is so, I mean, just... Well, he's honest. He's true. He, and he's honest. Foggy. He wants to be honest about reality. And reality is nuanced and foggy. And people are good and people are bad. Mm. Can we talk first about what I think is sadly under-discussed when this novel is written about mm-hmm. is style. Can we talk about style yeah. for a few minutes? Yes, we can. Conrad. I told you the other day that Conrad learned English in his 20s. Born in the Ukraine, spoke Polish, Ukrainian, and French. And then in his 20s as a sailor learned English with uh, among English sailors. I don't want to know that. I don't need to know that. Yeah, it's it's mortifying. (laughs) It's a mortifying fact. Uh, Makes you ashamed to... Makes one ashamed to be using the same language. Here's a bit I wanted to read. And just kind of like... I spent a few minutes yesterday kind of just randomly picking, almost randomly picking sections that would highlight his mastery of prose. For example, it was like the second thing I landed on and I thought it was totally great. I was cut to the quick. So, this is Marlowe speaking about possibly not meeting Kurtz. I was cut to the quick at the idea of having lost the inestimable privilege of listening to the gifted Kurtz. Of course, I was wrong. The privilege was waiting for me. Oh, yes, I heard more than enough. And I was right, too. A voice. He was very little more than a voice. And I heard him, it, this voice, other voices. All of them were so little more than voices. And the memory of that time itself lingers around me. 
impalpable, like a dying vibration of one immense jabber, silly, atrocious, sordid, savage, or simply mean, without any kind of sense. Voices, voices, even the girl herself, now. And then the paragraph ends. What I love about this is that it's a kind of mini masterpiece of bewilderment given a kind of eloquence. He's talking about Kurtz's voice and Kurtz's astonishing eloquence. And here in this piece of prose, the narrator keeps interrupting himself, but these interruptions become in their own way eloquent, you know? Um, A voice, interruptions become a kind of rapture, staccato rhythms, but not overly staccato. Something like out of the Old Testament or Whitman or Shakespeare, you know? And I heard him, it, this voice, other voices. Hmm. Like a dying vibration of one immense jabber, silly, atrocious, sordid, savage, or simply mean, without any kind of sense. Voices, voices. He maybe has the best ear of any prose writer. He can hear how people talk and how he can recreate that, the sound of a human. Mm. This is just all conjured out of words, ink on a page, and you hear because of these rhythms a human mind and a human soul. That takes an ear. You know, you have to pay attention to the way people talk. Oh, yeah. And he clearly has a gift for language if he was able to learn English in his 20s. Not only do you have to learn the language and the technical aspects of it, but the way people talk, and that takes a real ear, yeah. You like this part on page 65 about the fog. When the sun rose, there was a white fog, very warm and clammy, and more blinding than the night. It did not shift or drive. It was just there, standing all around you like something solid. At eight or nine, perhaps, it lifted as a shutter lifts. We had a glimpse of the towering multitude of trees of the immense matted jungle, with the blazing little ball of the sun hanging over it, all perfectly still. And then the white shutter came down again, smoothly, as if sliding in greased grooves. I think his prose is deceptively simple and spare. You know, I feel like he's trying to make it very plain, but... The words are so carefully chosen, and to be able to take something abstract like fog and make it concrete by turning it into um, this object, white shutters coming down, in gre- you know, sliding in greased grooves, that's all very subtle and very accurate. Well, maybe. I mean, yeah, I mean, there is a carefulness to, this, to the language, of course. Mm-hmm. And I suppose it's deceptive in the sense that Every detail matters. Yeah, Yeah, I mean, it looks plain, I suppose. I see what you're saying, but it isn't really. Every detail matters. Yeah, and even in the way Marlowe speaks, there's always this uh, understated quality. He's never, almost never, exaggerating. He always downplays things. You know, like, oh, I, when when I got closer to the things I thought were nice decorations, it turns out they were decapitated, you know, like heads on posts noticeably understated. Yeah. I don't know. I think that's an interesting move for a book called Heart of Darkness. You know what I mean? Conrad wants us to do the work. He doesn't want preach to us. You know, he, he wants to give us only enough on the canvas to get going with. And then he wants us to think. Yeah. He doesn't want to say this is horrible. So look at how horrible that is. He wants us to use our hearts to see that that is horrible. Yeah. And maybe he wants to say two things at the same time, you know? Mm. Yeah, and you know about this part. I also thought it was very interesting. I, in fact, 
I'm always trying to find uh, metaphors and the right language for describing darkness because I really love the night. And, you know, reading a book like this, Heart of Darkness, I guess I was, I was expecting to find a lot of that. But surprisingly, there was actually not very much actual darkness, you know, physical, physical darkness. When Marlowe gets to the station where he would meet Kurtz, there's this white fog everywhere, mm. this blinding white fog. And I thought that was yeah. such a cool move. There's one more bit of prose I want to read. It's kind of like a small symphony of looping repetitions and stacked clauses. And I think it's really beautiful, but subtly so. Deceptively simple, as you say. Mr. Kurtz's methods had ruined the district. I have no opinion on that point, but I want you clearly to understand that there was nothing exactly profitable in these heads being there. They only showed that Mr. Kurtz lacked restraint in the gratification of his various lusts, that there was something wanting in him, some small matter which, when the pressing need arose, could not be found under his magnificent eloquence. Whether he knew of his deficiency himself, I, can, I can't say. I think the knowledge came to him at last only at the very last. But the wilderness had found him out early, and had taken on him a terrible vengeance for the fantastic invasion. I think it had whispered to him things about himself which he did not know, things of which he had no conception till he took counsel with this great solitude, and the whisper had proved irresistibly fascinating. It echoed loudly within him because he was hollow at the core. You can't quite hear it because it's ever so faint in the background, but if you reread this passage, you'll notice that it's built on this, like I said, series of looping repetitions, anaphora, epistrophe, which is the repetition of the same word at the end of sentences or clauses, parallelisms, but also these what I'll call adjectival noun chunks. So there's all these repetitions like, I have no opinion, I want you to clearly understand. Knowledge came to him at last, at the very last, took on him a terrible vengeance, told him things about himself, things which he had no conception of. But then there's these wonderful pairings throughout this, kind of like a drumbeat. Various lusts, magnificent eloquence, terrible vengeance, fantastic invasion, great solitude, irresistible, fascinating. Just kind of anchor this whole thing together. Anyway, it's just like every... These were picked semi-randomly. Every page of this is a prose student's guide to how to master the language. Hmm. Yeah, it's it's uh, gorgeously written, and that's something I didn't see, for example, in my 20s when I tried to give it a shot. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't see that. I think I was uh, really trying to read it for the story, but the story didn't come easily to me, so I just kind of gave up and thought, oh, I'll just try later. So why does this story begin as a story within a story? The whole book is uh, dreamlike, and we hate to say that about books. <laughs> But it is, and it it feels like a story that takes place within someone's dream. It's so strange, and it must be more removed from reality, you know what I mean? I like that idea. Yeah, that had not occurred to me, to kind of put it even one more step away from um, what is real, which all of these um, English readers at the time, I'm sure, would have also wanted to do. Mm -hmm. The ugly truths that it reveals. Exactly. Um, I'm also, I think, just kind of an homage to the sailor way of life, apparently. You know, a sailor's yeah. yarn, they, they sit around telling each other stories. Yeah. So, they're in this boat going up the Thames. It's late at night and Marlowe starts telling them about this story. Mm -hmm. 
I also think it gives Conrad kind of a necessary distance to play, to be ironic, to say things that maybe he wouldn't believe. Yeah, and so you don't... Uh, or things that he did believe but didn't want to put in his own voice, you know? So you don't confuse the narrator's ideas and blindnesses with this, yeah. the author. <laughs> That's right. As you already alluded to, light and darkness are mixed right at the very beginning. When they get to, when, when Marlowe gets to Africa, there's this bright white fog. Mm. But even before then, he Marlowe says that England has once been one of the dark places of the earth. Mm. and remembers and imagines the ancient Romans first arriving here and encountering a quote-unquote barbaric place. But he also said it's night when they're on the Thames, when they start telling the story, so it's night there. He also says that Belgium, he describes Belgium as a whited sepulcher, which is a biblical allusion to a tomb, which is full of corpses, but is painted to look kind of new and mm. healthy. So Europe, right at the early pages of this, is... A place of corruption, evil, physical and metaphorical darkness. Mm. And uh, when we get to the end, Marlowe looks out the window and sees it's still a place of darkness. Do we want to talk about irony at all? Marlowe makes several allusions to the cause of colonialism, and I think these are clearly ironic. Like, you know, oh, he was a member of the noble cause or the great cause. You know what I mean? Mm. On page nine, he is talking about the ancient Romans, and he says they grabbed what they could get for the sake of what was to be got. It was just robbery with violence, aggravated murder on a great scale, and men going at it blind, mm. as is very proper for those who tackle a darkness. So he, he knows what evil is. He knows what horrors are committed in the name of settlement and colonialism. As it is so far removed in history, right? Right. But then when it's all around him, he's more blind. He's strangely inert. Mm -hmm. read some of those passages where he's surrounded by literally dying people, many of them, and he doesn't quite react the way we, we would want him to. Yeah, and even there's even a part uh, that seems to talk about being desensitized. He says, I was, so to speak, numbered with the dead. It is strange how I accepted this unforeseen partnership, this choice of nightmares forced upon me in the tenebrous land invaded by these mean and greedy phantoms. That when we're in the midst of evil, in the midst of suffering, there's a strange, um, I don't know, almost a numbness that comes over us. Yeah. I don't know if that's part of like our survival instinct, but... Probably, but it's a negative part of it. It is, of course, yeah. You know, I think there's an argument to be made that Marlowe is worse than Kurtz, because what does Kurtz need to be empowered, you know... He needs to be surrounded by Marlows who do nothing, who quote-unquote strangely accept what's going on around them. Very quickly, too. Yeah. You know, we've heard the I was just following orders argument mm. being repeated throughout the 20th century. And Marlowe is one of these figures who Conrad kind of predicts is going to go into these places and try to be like, well, not my problem, you know, shr shoulder shrug. At the same time, you also recognize that a lot of evil things that happen throughout history were probably rooted in fear. Marlowe, who succumbed to their fear in these extreme situations, you know what I mean? Mm. And then choose being desensitized and numb to it rather than fight against it. Yeah. So all I'm saying is that's not a good thing, obviously, but it is not as easy to say yeah. that that's rooted in pure evil. Yeah, Marlowe is us. Marlowe is just a dude. Yeah. You know, he's not a not particularly smart or noble or decent one, but he's not corrupt or bad or evil. He's just a person who wants a job. Mm -hmm. 
So he gets this job on this ship, taking this ship up the River Congo. There's a, there are these very weird scenes in Belgium where he, he meets his aunt and he gets his head measured and he sees those two women knitting in black, all very kind of clearly oh, yeah. emblematic. You know, these women knitting are the fates. They're knitting this black thing, which is clearly this funeral pall. The man measuring his skull says something very strange and Lynchian, like, oh, I, I, and Marlowe says, oh, you compare them with when they come back? And he says, oh, I never see them when they come back. Oh, like, no. Every single page is foreshadowing this. And and it's really, I mean, that image of them knitting with black wool there at the beginning, the women in the office. Yeah. That was such a creepy image to me. And then he returns to that image again at the end and says, Marlowe says, uh, it's strange that all of this began with women in an office knitting. And I thought that was a really cool way of implicating them in the disaster mm. and in the darkness. Yeah. They had a small part, but they yeah, were they, part of it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. They all had a small part. What does Marlowe want? We should talk about his, his character and his character arc. Why does he go to the Congo? He's a child. He's an ad adventurous child, and he wants to see new things. I think he's bored. There's no noble reason. He even tells us that when he was a child, he looked at a map of the Congo and saw that it was white. Yeah. And therefore unexplored. Hadn't yet been kind of, you know, stolen, colonized. No names. And he wanted to go there. This was an instant and immediate attraction because it had not been explored. We all have this in us. I remember doing that oh, as yeah. a kid, looking at maps. Thinking, what, 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 what is it like there? What is it like there? Yeah. Interesting also that it's white. I know, I love that. The Congo is white. So the Congo isn't the darkness, you know? Yeah. Conrad is wonderfully and immediately subverting oh, yeah. this light, goodness, darkness, evil overly simplistic dichotomy that I think his readers would have expected. I know. In fact, that that maybe also was a thing that kept me from reading this throughout the years, because I thought, oh, it's just going to be this sort of black and white story about... Yeah, oppressors are evil and victims are pitiable. Yeah, but wow, it was completely the opposite of that. <laughs> it's not that at all. So he no. goes out there because he wants a job and he's lucky to get a job in a place that is mysterious and exciting to him. Mm. That's why he goes. He starts hearing about this man, Kurtz. Love that name. That at a station he's told he has to go get and bring back, right? Yeah. Why do you love the name Kurtz? I love that name because it means short in German, and it's such an amazing, such a great pairing with all of the character traits that we know about him. He is short, <laughs> and he is even described as looking like a child by Marlowe and weighing as much as a child when he's uh, carrying him at some point. And he's bald, so he's like yes. this weird fetus or something. Yes, the bald part's very creepy when it's described. Mm. Um, like nature kind of polished his head. Yeah. <laughs> creepy. Also, he's supposed to be like this very eloquent speaker and writer. I mean, Marla just goes on and on about it, right? You, you talked about how he talks about right. his voice. And people, everybody's like, oh, his words, his words. But they are very few when we do meet him. Very few. <laughs> yeah, let's save that. Let's let's save the meeting of him because there's a the the novel, the novella takes its time bringing him onto the stage. We only hear about him for a while. The genocide that is being chronicled in this novella. That's another reason why I think the accusation of racism that's leveled at this book is so unfair because it's chronicling a genocide. 
Mm. And who else was chronicling the Belgian genocide in the Congo mm. 120 years ago? No one. It would have gone unchronicled, you know? Yeah, so and it's being, this. and I think he's doing it in a really interesting way. He's chronicling it in this weird approach where Kurtz himself becomes a metaphor almost for land that's, that, uh, and Marlowe is coming to take him. It's almost as if um, Marlowe's colonizing Kurtz, or trying to. He has these qualities that Marlowe is strangely obsessed with, and inexplicably, and he is coming to find him in the heart of darkness, in the a very unexpected metaphor, because Kurtz is the evil one, right? Marlowe doesn't even know why he admires Kurtz so much, and why he wants to get to him so badly, and what he'll find, but he just knows he needs to go and get him. Just as weird as some of these things people, you know, ivory or these things people were trading that suddenly they had to have. You know what I mean? Suddenly Europeans felt like they had to have certain things that came out of Africa. Marlowe goes to um, find Kurtz because he supposedly has all these qualities. And he seems to be this unattainable treasure and he goes to get him. But he's disillusioned. In some ways, even though he doesn't want to admit it to himself, so he goes on sort of with the charade. Even as he's talking to Kurtz's um, um, fiance, if that's what she was, it almost seems like he's just telling himself that Kurtz had these great qualities. Like he's just pretending that this was all a worthwhile endeavor. Um, it's this wonderful moment when they're going down the coast and they see this warship firing into the continent of Africa. So before they even get into the interior. Mm -hmm. This wonderful image of the West or technology kind of attacking the very geography of the place for no yes. for no apparent reason. Yeah. So um, this is what the narrator says. I remember we came upon a man of war anchored off the coast. There wasn't even a shed there, and she was shelling the bush. It appears the French had one of their wars going on thereabouts. Her ensign <laughs> dropped limp like a rag. The muzzles of the long six-inch guns stuck out all over the low hull. The greasy, slimy swell swung her up lazily and let her down, swaying her thin masts. In the empty immensity of earth, sky, and water, there she was, incomprehensible, firing into a continent. And then he says there was a touch of insanity in the proceedings. So mm. it's just an insane and futile and cartoonishly pointless, impotent little gesture. But still, somehow they felt like it needed to happen. Just a bunch of kids playing a horrible game. Yeah, a horrible game. And it gets more horrible. Let me see if I can find this part. And don't you love the tone in one of their wars? The French with one of their wars. Yeah, I know. It's just like, who knows? <laughs> yeah, I mean, this book is so yeah. clearly just wanting to portray the absurdity of all of these supposedly grown-up endeavors. <laughs> well, it's not just absurdity. Absurdity, yeah, but then Marlowe yeah, starts to, to see the, least. the full horror of it. He gets into, you know, he, they land the ship, they get into the continent, and he says this, this is a long extended passage. It's worth reading. I had stepped into the gloomy circle of some inferno. So an allusion to Dante there. The rapids were near and an uninterrupted uniform headlong rushing noise filled the mournful stillness of the grove where not a breath stirred, not a leaf moved, and a mysterious sound as though the tearing pace of the launched earth had suddenly become audible. Mm. Black shapes crouched, lay, sat between the trees, leaning against the trunks, clinging to the earth, half coming out, half effaced within the dim light, in all the attitudes of pain, abandonment, and despair. Mm. 
Another mine on the cliff went off, followed by a slight shudder of the soil under my feet. The work was going on. The work. And this was the place where some of the helpers had withdrawn to die. They were dying slowly. It was very clear. They were not enemies. They were not criminals. They were nothing earthly now. Nothing but black shadows of disease and starvation lying confusedly in the greenish gloom. Brought from all the recesses of the coast, in all the legality of time contracts, lost in uncongenial surroundings, fed on unfamiliar food, they sickened, became inefficient, and were then allowed to crawl away and rest. These moribund shapes were free as air and nearly as thin. I began to distinguish the gleam of the eyes under the trees. Then, glancing down, I saw a face near my hand. The black bones reclined at full length with one shoulder against the tree, and slowly the eyelids rose, and the sunken eyes looked up to me, enormous and vacant, a kind of blind, white flicker in the depths of the orbs, which died out slowly. And then he gives him a biscuit, and he gives this man a biscuit, and then the man kind of a like... Biscuit. Yeah, like this most futile, almost <laughs> insulting gesture. So Marlowe sees this hellish vision of corpses, near, near corpses. And this is... And... and reports this, but reports it with, as you said earlier, the strange indifference. I mean... Very understated, again, this... I, I, maybe we shouldn't say strange indifference. He does call it an inferno. Yeah. He does say that... It's just understated. It's like... We want him to react even more strongly to this. We want him to start shouting and screaming and doing something. I don't... Yeah. Don't you feel like he's almost doing the quotation mark <laughs> gesture when he's like, and the... The work was happening and the oh, helpers. That's I, yeah, that's what I mean about the irony before. It's like yeah. he doesn't, he's not endorsing this project at all. No, not endorsing, but it it's as if he is actively trying to be okay with it. You know what I mean? Trying to be like, oh, well, yeah. this is sort of what I have to do. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. We're watching a man in the act of desensitizing himself. I think so. And there's even that one point where he says he detests a lie, and then he admits, well, for Kurtz, I think I will lie. So we, we see the gradual, or maybe not so gradual, degradation of his own heart hmm. becoming darker and darker and darker. All these wonderful whisperings about Kurtz, Kurtz this, Kurtz that. Oh, the great man, Kurtz, the great man, Kurtz. Have you heard him speak? Have you heard Kurt speak? Mm. Apparently, Kurtz can speak with divine supernatural power, charisma. Mm -hmm. And when we meet Kurtz, you've already taken us there. His name means short, so there's this like a extremely wonderfully ironic ju juxtaposition with the the rumor of the man, the legend of the man, and the actual man. I know you picture somebody with this <clears throat> Napoleon complex. <laughs> Perhaps that's what it is. I mean, short. I don't. <laughs> Remember how we first see Kurtz on a stretcher? So mm -hmm. he's kind of this wounded god or this dying god. But maybe the god part isn't real. Is he a god or a fraud? You know, that's, that's an accidental rhyme, but perhaps <laughs> felicitous, perhaps, you know, a helpful one here. Is, he a, is Kurtz a god or a fraud? Do we have any direct evidence that he is as grand a man as he is rumored to be? No. There's only evidence that people are fooled by him have been have fallen under the spell. Yeah, that's not nothing though. I mean, yeah. out of multiple witnesses we get the sense that Kurtz is somehow immensely powerful. Right. So it's not just one person making this up. Everyone who encounters him seems to come under the same type of spells. So there is something there. Right, but we're also given very very visual reminders 
that everybody's fooled because of the heads on the posts that are positioned to look towards his window, Kurtz's window. That's amazing detail. That's so creepy. This book is not very graphic, but when it does get graphic, it's just, oh, it's so gross. Yeah, they're not just heads on pikes. They're positioned to look at him. (laughs) Terrible. But that's part of the, isn't it? Like you, you awe with, this is an event that draws people to him, not one that repels people from him. Right. He's, he's not mediocre. He does huge things. He does huge things. And people seem to be drawn to people who do huge things, but no then matter again, what they are. But then again, the narrator, Marlowe, isn't totally blind because Marlowe calls him a hollow man. Hollow, quote, quote unquote, hollow to the core. I know. I'm so confused about Marlowe's feelings towards him. Well, let's get there. Let, let, let's slowly unpack this. It, it is, there are, they are quite contradictory and ambivalent. So mm-hmm. Marlowe calls him hollow to the core, but then seems to be willing to follow him. I love this detail here that um, explains Kurtz. The original Kurtz had been educated partly in England. And as he was good enough to say himself, his sympathies were in the right place. His mother was half English. His father was half French. All Europe contributed to the making of Kurtz. Mm, yeah, that's a good one. So Kurtz is an emblem. He's a distillation of Europe. He has Europe's technological progress and prowess. It's kind of worship of reason. It's kind of enlightenment. Europe's ambitions. It's Europe's ambitions and its hyper faith in enlightenment progress. We learn that Kurtz is the author of this little report, This what he calls a pamphlet called the um, what is it called? This pamphlet called? I won't be able to find the title, but... Um, Basically a pamphlet about how to educate savages or how to make them... It was a report for some European body about how best to integrate, quote-unquote, the savages right into Europe or how, how best to, quote-unquote, appease them or educate them. Yeah. 17 pages of, quote-unquote, a beautiful piece of writing. These are Marlowe's sentences. Mm-hmm. Um, he began with the argument that we whites... <clears throat> from the point of development, had arrived at, quote, must necessarily appear to them, savages, in the nature of supernatural beings. Mm-hmm. We approach them with the might as of a deity. But then Marlowe tells us that the very end of this, written later, supposedly, because it's scrawled in kind of a different kind of handwriting. Like an afterthought, yeah. As an afterthought, Kurtz added, exterminate all the brutes. So his kind of rational enlightenment approach to these people has devolved into genocidal delusion. Mm, yeah, it does seem like one of Kurtz's huge downfalls is that he wants control, and as he's not able to control entire people, you know, um, cultures, yeah. he basically yeah. turns to the ultimate control, basically just wanting to kill them all. Well, we we were talking about Hitler the other day. We, we are not oh, the only yeah. people... To have made that comparison with this book. It's terrifying. It's so... It's kind of prophetic. So prophetic. But Hitler wanted, you know, in the days in the bunker near the the end of the war, when when Hitler realized that Germany was going to lose, he wanted Germany to burn, take vengeance on his own country for letting itself be defeated. Like a megalomaniac will, if not worshipped, absolutely. If you can't turn those heads to your window, you don't want any heads looking any other direction. Yeah. You know? So exterminate the brutes. Yeah. it's It, it was also creepy to me at the end when his... I'm calling her fiancé, but... Intended. Intended, yeah. yeah. When she talks about him, it's like, oh, he was a universal genius. He was... Um, 
He was an artist. He was a writer. He That's was, right. He could have been a musician. We learned that. He was a very good musician. He had all these talents, supposedly, and it's just so creepy because of, you know, of course, the Chris Hitler having yeah. supposedly being an artist and he wanted to go to art school and was rejected. Yeah. I love that detail that Kurtz could have become a musician, though, because there's something about the voice and the power of the rhythms and the music of the voice that Kurtz has transported from the realm of music into the realm of speech. I know. It's it's almost as if he is a, um, a slighted, maybe yeah. wannabe artist, somebody who was rejected. And so he goes for something more extreme that people yeah. can't deny. That moment where the, the Russian Harlequin, is it he who says, oh, he, t- he spoke to us of great things like of love. Oh my and, it's so and Marlowe's like, oh, we love. get this kind of like subtext, chuckle in the subtext. Oh, love, hey, he spoke to you of love. So this kind of like hippie commune was built in the jungle. I know. And Kurt set himself up as this new kind of Jesus mm-hmm. who had this Sermon on the Mount and preached of love, which I bet was true. You know, I bet whatever doctrine Kurt was preaching probably at some point had love as an ingredient, but. Well, yeah, because the people around that station were very devoted to him and, yeah. in fact, wanted to kill Marlowe and his ship because um, they thought, you know, he was coming to take Kurtz away. Yeah. So, yeah, there, he, Kurtz must have used both love and violence to rule them. Like any horrible leader. demonic leader. Na- Marlowe tells us that the, that the jungle, quote unquote, whispered something to Kurtz about himself that Kurtz didn't know. What's your sense of that? What did Kurtz learn about himself? He was a slighted artist, a slighted god, a Napoleon complex. Yes. Is there something deeper, though? Because th- this is all at the level of kind of like junior high resentment. This, this happens to kids, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm just wondering if there's something deeper about human nature or the nature of the universe that Kurtz started to believe. Well, it does seem like he had a, a strange epiphany there at the very end uncharacteristic of um, people so blinded by greed and and all terrible ambitions. You know, when he, when his last words are, he just says, the horror, the horror. It's as if he finally sees things clearly through all of this terrible dream, through all of this, you know, blinding greed. He sees the horror. He sees human suffering. It comes too late. You know, it comes at the very end. So, yeah, the, his life. the horror, the horror, immensely perfect choice of last words on, on the part of Conrad, the, right, the, you... the novelist, because it, it could mean something specific. It could mean one thing. It could mean everything. It could be nothing in particular. It could just be that he's scared of death. could be that. It certainly could be what you just said, that the sense that Kurtz finally recognized the pain of the, the evil that he himself had reaped on the world. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I really like the idea of the blindness because it seems like people's problems in this book are um, brought on by a kind of blindness. I think Kurtz has been blind for a long time, um, at least since um, his intended, uh, his their, her family didn't think she, he was good enough for her, right. wasn't rich enough, came from a poor background apparently. Yeah, it's a kind of, kind of um, great Gatsby thing happening. <laughs> you right. know, he wants to prove himself to the world and to her family, and it spirals out of control. And, you know, he keeps being more and more blinded by this this greed to um, set himself above everyone else. And yeah, and I think we can't choose when we have these horrible 
epiphanies, but he gets his at the very end of his life. There, There is even a, a thing about that, where Marlowe talks about how we can't choose when we see things or understand things. Yeah, here Marlowe says... But before I could come to any conclusion, it occurred to me that my speech or my silence, indeed any action of mine, would be a mere futility. What did it matter what anyone knew or ignored? What did it matter who was manager? One gets sometimes such a flash of insight. The essentials of this affair lay deep under the surface, beyond my reach and beyond my power of meddling. Yeah, that's really good. Yeah, I thought that was good. Even... You know, from the writer's point of view, I know Conrad wanted to write literature that helped people see, but he must have been aware, painfully aware, that you can't force somebody to see a thing unless they're ready. Right. And Marlowe, I mean, Kurtz, didn't see the horror until the end. One totally great reading is that Kurtz dies recognizing what is good and what is evil, and that he chose the path of evil, and it's this kind of self-indictment. Hmm. Yeah. Too, all too late, of course. This isn't to redeem him or to say that he achieved anything remotely like forgiveness or salvation. He just sees things clearly for a it's moment. A, it's, a, it's at least clear sight. Yeah. What if there's no goodness or truth? It's possible that Kurtz is recognizing the difference between the two and describing his own actions as horrible. But what if he's describing existence itself and not just his own actions? Probably the strangest aspect of the novel is that Marlowe admires Kurtz and kind of stands yes. with him. Yes, it's very surprising because he d um, criticizes all of this yeah. uh, stuff in the beginning. They take Marlowe out on this. They take Kurtz out on this boat, mm -hmm. off of which Kurtz tries to crawl back into the jungle, which is a horrifying image. Mm. He's this invalid, and he kind of crawls back into the jungle. This kind of like de-evolved animalistic state, you know. Um, but anyway, they get him back on the boat. Marlowe thinks about killing him. Interestingly. I know. Isn't that weird? It's so weird. <clears throat> it's. I honestly think the main darkness in this book is blindness. The heart of darkness is the heart of blindness. You you get to a place where you choose not to see anymore. You don't. You choose not to see the consequences of your actions and the harm that you're causing. And you know, for all you know, as you just fulfill your own selfish desires. So as um, Marlowe gets further into that place, that heart of darkness, that blindness, he becomes more blind and more mm. interested in Kurtz and his endeavors. Mm. What if the opposite is true? No, I'm not actually saying that I disagree with you. Mm. It offers your reading, but it offers an another contradictory reading. Yeah. What if Marlowe and Kurtz see everything truthfully and clearly? What if it's the opposite of blindness? It's enlightenment. Well, I do think I do think um, Kurtz does see clearly, and it's the first moment of true clarity, really, in the novel when he says the horror, the horror. Yeah, but what is that that he sees? I think you, you he think sees. Well, you said you think he sees the evil of his actions. I think he sees the evil of the world and the futility of everything. I think he has a true um, nihilistic moment. And, and I think that this is a view every single human could take, looking at the facts, every single human. Either he sees that there is goodness and evil, and he has chosen evil, or he sees that these values don't exist. He can't see both. I didn't mean that he realizes he has been bad, you know, and that he needs to change. It's not a turning point in any way. This is not like 
in any way, you know, him about to repent, but he sees clearly what he is and what the world is. And it's a very nihilistic view of the world. He has a completely hopeless view of everything. He sees the evil, but he also, but he does not see, seem to think that there is any point in amending it. There's only darkness. Yeah. Just the laws of the jungle. That's right. The existence is a phenomenon of kill or be killed, eat or be eaten. All animals. And there is no value. Yeah. This is true in Africa. This is true in Europe. This is true everywhere. This is true anywhere things exist. Yes. This is potentially what Kurt sees. So he sees this and describes it, existence being, as the horror. Yes. Because it's irredeemable, totally valueless, devoid of meaning. Mm. And yeah, he used to he used to seemingly believe in music, uh, literature, in love because he talked of love. Uh-huh. All those are just um, they could not override the laws of the jungle. Well, plus they're all fake. They're all treading water. Mm-hmm. You know, like we're in this dark sea, this dark abyss, and we can like flap our arms and pretend that we're not drowning, but we are. This is a vision of the universe that perhaps Kurtz sees. Why does Marlowe admire this? It might be... I'm going to read a few chunks, Mm -hmm. and then we can try to answer that question. His was an impenetrable darkness. So they're on this boat. They get him on this boat. They're taking him out. He gets to spend a lot of one-on-one time with Kurtz. His was an impenetrable darkness. I looked at him as you peer down at a man who was lying at the bottom of a precipice where the sun never shines. That's good writing. Wonderful. But I had not much time to give him because I was helping the engine driver to take to pieces the leaky cylinders. Cetera, that's funny. <laughs> I mean, I know. That, you, that's funny right there. <laughs> well, explain. As a 20-year-old, I might not have seen the humor, but... Yeah. Like, he's having a nihilistic crisis, but I wasn't able to bother with that right now because <laughs> life gets in the way. The rivets, like, there are rivets in the world, but not where you want them to be, and life is like a cruel joke at every step. Yeah. And also, technology and civilization isn't all it's cracked up to be. You know, what are what good is a boat with no rivets? And... It's not that easy to get rivets. They, <laughs> and what's a boat when nothing matters? Well, they've so just detached themselves from what it means to live in the world that they're like f- floating on these rafts of civilization. And when the rafts leak, they're totally screwed. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I saw on that ivory face the expression of somber pride, of ruthless power, of craven terror, of an intense and hopeless despair. And the, the, these are his last words. He cried in a whisper at some image, at some vision. He cried out twice, a cry that was no more than a breath. The horror, the horror. Then this boy comes in, pronounces him dead. Mr. Kurtz, he dead. Which is a wonderfully, I think, Nietzschean allusion to the death of God. Like, this is a universe now that is officially without any kind of deity or value system or meaning. Right? Mm. Um, and then Marlowe says, I went no more near the remarkable man who had pronounced a judgment upon the adventures of his soul on this earth. There are more important bits like it that I'll read now. Marlowe says, droll thing my life is, that mysterious arrangement of merciless logic for a futile purpose. The most you can hope from it is some knowledge of yourself that comes too late. Yes. A crop of unextinguishable regrets. Skipping a bit. This is the reason why I affirm that Kurtz was a remarkable man. He had something to say. He said it. Since I had peeped over the edge myself... I understand better the meaning of his stare that could not see the flame of the candle, but was wide enough to embrace the whole universe, piercing enough to penetrate all the hearts that beat 
in the darkness. He had summed up. He had judged the horror. He was a remarkable man. One more little bit here. Referring to this statement, the horror, Marlowe says, it was an affirmation, a moral victory paid for by innumerable defeats, by abominable terrors, by abominable satisfactions, but it was a victory. That is why I have remained loyal to Kurtz to the last, and even beyond, when a long time after I heard once more not his own voice, but the echo of his magnificent eloquence thrown to me from a soul as translucently pure as a cliff of crystal. What in the world? It's just immensely... We both instantly finished this book and said we must reread it. Mm -hmm. It was one of those. It's like, oh gosh, this is so good. So what has Marlowe just told us? Why does he remain loyal to Kurtz? And what does he see so remarkable about this utterance? I'm honestly at a loss. Believe it or not. (laughs) Just kidding. No, I, I am at a loss. And I love that. I don't think you are. I think... You, you've already gotten ha- us halfway there. You say, Kurtz sees with immense clarity. Yeah, and Marlowe says, we have... Um, and pronounces a judgment. Moments of clarity that come too late. Marlowe, Kurtz has given to Marlowe the truth of the universe. Mm-hmm. That it's empty and hollow and futile. Kurtz has become for Marlowe a kind of prophet of nihilism. Some, finally, someone telling the truth. He has revealed to me. What is? He says Kurtz couldn't, he was so blind he couldn't see the candle flame in front of him, but he could see the truth of the whole universe. That's why I say it's not really about the ivory trade. Kurtz's pronouncement, the horror, refers to the universe. Marlowe admires that because Kurtz hasn't been fooled. Everyone else back in London who is making pianos out of ivory, knitting their things, going to the theater, they're all idiots because they don't know that. Even just sitting at home, sipping their tea, thinking that... Knitting with black yarn. Not knowing that they're floating on an abyss of nothing. (laughs) They're idiots. Marlowe admires Kurtz Uh, because he saw, he was honest, he bravely pronounced, he didn't pretend that the universe isn't the horror. I see. Yeah, that makes sense. But of course, to be clear, we do not admire Kurtz. (laughs) We're just saying what Marlowe admires in him. We, we're trying to find some explanation as to Marlowe's strange admiration for him, yes. Yeah. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. They're it all does, idiots right? because they don't see. Yeah. Uh, it has been revealed to me by this prophet that the universe is meaningless. Yeah, this is a terrible, what are they called? Bildungsroman? Yeah. Right? Isn't it in a way? Starts off a very naive man. Yeah, that's right. And then he comes to understand everything. Uh, understand. He thinks he does. Yeah, right. In quotation marks, understand. I mean, we could ask ourselves if Conrad thinks this, and maybe he does. But So he keeps these private papers. He returns this pamphlet that Kurtz wrote about the assimilation of the natives, but he rips off the pa- yes. the, the little bit, exterminate the brutes. Still, he doesn't want Kurtz's reputation to be harmed. You know, he even it's kind of a sign of affection or love. You know, he's protecting Kurtz's reputation in this extremely disturbing way. He waits a year, and then he finally goes to see this intended, this woman. And... They have this very strange conversation. She says, did you know him well? And he says, well, intimacy grows quickly. She kind of corners him into saying what Kurtz's last words were. And it's dark outside. And then she says, what a loss to me, to us, to the world, you know. I just honestly keep picturing um, supporters of very oddly devoted supporters of terrible politicians. Well, I'm not sure if we know how she doesn't know quite what he became. 
Yeah. I think she knows more. There's this, there's this bit where Marlowe says women are out of it. Women have to be protected from the horror of the ivory trade and the genocide that's happening there. Yeah. So I'll, I'll sugarcoat the truth for her because she's a soft little woman and is very patronizing. Mm-hmm. So she doesn't know all of it, but I think she knows more than you know, she's not an idiot. She knows where ivory comes from. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What was I going to say? Uh, yeah. She says, I have mourned so long in silence. I have longed to hear. And then Marla says, I heard his very last words. She says, repeat them. I want something, something to live with. <laughs> and then in his own mind, Marla says this to himself. I was on the point of crying at her. Don't you hear them? The dusk was repeating them in a persistent whisper all around us. Mm. In a whisper that seemed to swell menacingly like the first whisper of a rising wind. The horror. The horror. So that's what the dusk of London is saying. That's what the wind outside the window is saying. Mm. The horror is everywhere. It's you know, The universe speaks it. The universe speaks it. That's why I think to, to reduce this novel to a colonialist lens is really a tragedy because it's that's only a fraction of it the, it's only a small fraction of it this book is making a judgment on the universe yeah outside the windows of london right now one worldview says is being whispered the horror mm-hmm. it's, in, it's inescapable mm-hmm. being alive in the world is horrible um marla says i pulled myself together and spoke slowly the last word he pronounced was your name she says i knew it i was sure <laughs> you know and then she starts to cry Interesting that she has no name, like we never find out her name because Marlowe, he doesn't ask or he doesn't tell us. He doesn't care to tell the people with whom he's conversing what this woman's name was. She it's becomes like, a kind of non-person. It's like the um, she's she's innocent in many ways and kept innocent like that place on the map Marlowe speaks of in the beginning when it was still white before it had been polluted with names. And Is that good or bad? That's an interesting question. Why doesn't he quote-unquote, open her eyes, why doesn't he assume the mantle of prophet and be like, well, his last words were the horror because what you don't know about the universe is that it's pointless. And this was his last pronouncement. I Yeah, I think, I think the glimpses of light are very few in this book and very small. Mm-hmm. But I think that's one of them. It's an act of, of kindness or an act of love, I think. Really? Mm-hmm. I'm not saying Marlowe's admirable in any way, but I think he has this nihilistic view of the world and he doesn't want to stain somebody else's view. It could be. You could be right about that. I wonder also, it's just, it's so rabbit duck. It's it's so contradictory and nuanced though, because it's also equally patronizing or... It is, yeah. Let's talk about affirmation though. That's the exact word that Marlowe uses to describe Kurtz's judgment, the horror, that it was an affirmation, that it affirms. Very strange word to use to describe the most nihilistic vision, perhaps in in English literature. Yeah. <laughs> that it affirms something. So that's what I would like to spend five minutes now closing with, is a discussion on, is Kurtz an evil man who has duped a naive everyman into believing his own nihilistic worldview? Are there any counter-arguments that the novel in other places, in its narration, in other characters, in the frame narrator, the person who is not Marlowe, are there any glimmers of light? Or is the worldview of the novel, not just of Marlowe, that existence is dark and horrible? No, I feel strongly about I feel strongly about this book being as these characters being portrayed 
by someone who does not agree. But how do we know he doesn't agree? I'm not saying that I know he doesn't agree. Because they're portrayed as very naive and blind. I don't trust them. I don't trust their stories and their voices. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, he lies to the fiancé, so why wouldn't he lie to us, mm-hmm. Marlo? Yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe Marlo <laughs> thinks it's affirmative um, because it acts as a sort of justification for terrible actions. Mm. Yeah, let's follow the laws of the jungle because nothing matters. So let's look out for our own best interest. And, and we're not guilty because there is exactly. no sin. We're not guilty, yes. It's all darkness, so we do what we have to. But Marlo doesn't seem happier about this revelation, this pseudo-revelation. You know, he doesn't exactly. come. He doesn't come away and think, "Oh, what a relief! We're not committing genocide because <laughs> murder is exactly th- there is I, no such thing as sin." He doesn't seem to know what he's thinking, honestly, because deep in his heart, it does seem like he has not gone over completely to the dark side. You know what I mean? Because yeah, the way he talks to he he seems to know that there it is a terrible world view. He does say he's peeped into it. Kurtz has fallen into it. He's kind of peeped from from the edges mm. into it. But I just wonder if I was writing this novel, if I would be tempted to insert the hint of a counter argument anywhere. Well, there is that moment. There is that moment when they're on the way to the station and um, the native. Um, he's the boat driver. He drives the engines, or he fixes the engines in the boat. Right. he. Uh, they have many cultural differences and don't understand each other in many ways. But there is that moment where he is killed by an arrow and he looks him in the eyes. And I should probably read that part because it is really striking, you know, especially with all this terrible dark background. I think this is a really, really important moment. I saw vague forms of men running, bent, double, leaping, gliding, distinct, incomplete, evanescent. Something big appeared in the air before the shutter. The rifle went overboard, and the man stepped back swiftly, looked at me over his shoulder in an extraordinary, profound, familiar manner, and fell upon my feet. Yeah, it was that moment, uh, and he returns to that, uh, where he, he just can't forget the way he looked at him, at Marlowe, as he was dying. I missed my late helmsman awfully. I missed him even while his body was still lying in the pilot house. Perhaps you will think it passing strange, this regret for a savage who was no more account than a grain of sand in a black Sahara. Well, don't you see, he had done something. He had steered. For months I had him at my back. I help an instrument. It was a kind of partnership. He steered for me. I had to look after him. I worried about his deficiencies, and thus a subtle bond had been created, of which I only became aware when it was suddenly broken, and the intimate profundity of that look he gave me when he received his hurt remains to this day in my memory, like a claim of distant kinship affirmed in a supreme moment. Mm, That's wonderful. That's an important moment. A claim of distant kinship affirmed. Yes. That this is the brightest moment of the book. It, you could be right about that. Yeah. Um is it bright enough? I think it's bright enough to to see even if the characters don't fully see it for us to see it, this is what matters. This is what yeah. saves. It's important to note that he is saying this after because he's retelling this story. So everything that has happened in the story has already mm-hmm. happened when he says that. So for yeah. him to say uh, like a claim of distant kinship affirmed in a supreme moment. So that claim of distant kinship has survived Marlowe's imbibing of the Kurtzian nihilism. Yeah. That small moment on that boat with somebody he wasn't even very close to, but he gave him a look. Yeah. 
that had that had changed his life forever, apparently. Claim of distant kinship could be the most important phrase in the whole book. Yeah. <laughs> affirmed. A claim of distant kinship affirmed. Yeah. There's that word again. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful because, yeah, evil happens just like nature happens, but good happens in the same way, too. It can kind of surprise us like it surprised him. Is it? I just wonder if it's enough. Maybe I've been reading this novel or thinking about this book for too long, but just think about Marlowe. Like, just think about a human looking for potential sources of meaning, and Marlowe is, is, is an example human. He doesn't really care about his job. He'll take any old thing. Mm-hmm. Marlowe's family life doesn't really seem to give him much meaning. He has this aunt. <laughs> but he's not embraced by a loving kinship at home. So that's not a source of meaning for him. Religion, now nah, he's skeptical about the religion because there are these missionaries that his aunt says go out and Christianize the Africans. And Marlowe kind of knows that that's a bunch of hokey. So it's not religion that's giving his life meaning. It's not family. It's not his work. Um, his life, like many lo- people feel this way now, has no meaning. Mm-hmm. So he goes on this adventure to try to look for meaning and... He sees what? Pointless slaughter, pointless shelling into the jungle by this stupid ship. That moment where he sees these Africans digging holes for no reason, mm-hmm. serve no purpose. Mm-hmm. Pointless like, explosions. Like many people now who have to get up every day and go to work at pointless jobs. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like so many jobs that just seem so pointless. Yeah. And cause so much suffering. Yeah. You know, it's pointless to watch people that you love die or live poor lives. There is every reason to believe that existence is just pointless suffering. So Africa is dark, but London is described as dark at the beginning and at the end. So yeah. you you leave one dark and enter another dark, and then you go back to the original dark. You're just ping-ponging between darknesses, looking for something. And that's not nothing. What you just found for us is not nothing. Yeah. But it's like in a tsunami of valueless suffering, the claim of distant kinship affirmed, can that compensate for or overtake or be victorious on the Kurtzes of the world, or even the Marlows of the world, the people who stand back and let the Kurtzes of the world do what they do. It's like a little tiny, like we were at Washington, you know, <laughs> late at night, you could go out and shake the water. This is in the Puget Sound. You go out and shake the water and ever so faintly see these little bioluminescent algaes, you know what I mean? Mm. Ever so faintly, but it's mostly just very hard to see. Mm-hmm. So even while acknowledging that this light exists, do we tell people that they should walk away from this novel still? How do we walk away from this novel? With a triumphant appreciation for the claim of distant kinship affirmed, or kind of stunned into a dark, all-too-true cavern of... I view it as an object lesson, honestly, of how things can get if you give up hope. This is what happens. If you, f- if you fully give in to that view of the world that nothing matters, then this is what can happen. And what are you supposed to do? What's the alternative? You're supposed to look people in the eyes and see that distant kinship and make it less distant. And not to view the world as your playground in which you are going to fulfill all your desires. And people really admire people who are hungry to um, to do big things. And with people, good people who have talent, that can be a beautiful thing. But ambitions live in people like Hitler, too. Life is not about doing big, great things as much as it is about loving people and actively looking for the love in the darkness. I like that you brought up the bio- bioluminescent algae because... 
it takes a while to see it in the dark. You need that darkness to see it. Mm. So it's yeah, not that- Yeah, you have that, to wait and let your eyes acclimate. Mm -hmm. The darkness can numb you. You can let it desensitize you or you can let it bring out the bright things. I'm reminded of the ending of Invisible Cities, which we read a while ago. You know, mm. search in the inferno, seek out what is not inferno and give it, yes. give that space, give those things space. Yes. You know, so it, it's not necessarily disagreeing that we, just to say that we don't live in an inferno would be partly a lie because just read the news. Each human, no matter where they live, how they live, has an inferno inside. <laughs> That's why Kurtz has such power, perhaps, because he's not really wrong to look at the universe oh, yeah. and, and make the judgment that he makes on it. Yeah, and in fact, I really, I, I just remembered the the take that Apocalypse Now, you know, the the uh, the approach they have or the movie has. Um, I remember Kurtz sitting there in the form of. Um, Marlon Brando. Yeah. Which is crazy. What a choice. But it's good because he has something noble Seems looking perfect. about him. But yeah, he sits there and has this uh, kind of a longish speech where he says that so much in life hurt him, but then he decided to hurt life instead and to take it into his own hands, to take back the power. Right. And he thought that was a pretty cool interpretation or elaboration on his character. Right, so you look at this dark wave, running with this bioluminescence metaphor. Yeah. <laughs> you, take, you look at the sea of darkness and, and you, could, you could take your fist and start smashing it because it's dark and say, well, if, you know, if it's dark and it hurts me... I'm just going to give back the hurt. I'll give it back, yeah. I'll, I'll make it suffer like it made me suffer. I will, I will destroy it. Of it, yeah. Or, yeah, I will exert my own power over it. Yeah. Or you can get that algae blooming and shining. You know what I mean? Make it survive. Make it brighter. Mm. Dim the darkness by 0.5%. And then if everyone does. Yeah. If everyone in that terrible jungle started looking into each other's eyes for that distant kinship, right. imagine what could have happened. But even in London, too, not just the jungle. Like yes. People in London are passing. That's why I think Marlowe is a great... You're right, because it is a cautionary tale, because he goes back not really having learned the lessons that he needed to. He does have that claim of just, he catches that glimpse of distant kinship, mm -hmm. but he doesn't really, it doesn't affect him in the way that it should, or at least not yet. He should commune with the intended. You know, they just have this very stilted, awkward conversation, which they don't really get to know each other. They're talking past each other. Mm. He doesn't even really ask her name or doesn't care to tell us what her name is. Mm. He's going. He's going to walk through the streets of London now, being too obsessed with the dark void and not nearly interested enough in the light coming from people's eyes. Yeah, you know what I mean. Oh yeah. But perhaps we've affirmed too much. I don't know. I think Conrad. I have no idea. I can't read the minds of the dead. But if if Conrad were here and we asked him, "Are you a nihilist?" I'd flip a coin. He could easily. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he said yes. And and my and my view of the world as depicted in this novella is nihilistic because it's it's on such a knife edge. The clues that we get to the contrary are so small and and uh, fleeting. Yeah, he probably was more of a nihilist than us, but I think the fact that this book exists—that's true. Any work of literature is complete. It's completely unavoidable, but it will be like you know, it will make an argument well, for. That's true. 
beauty. Even the fact that like I have a I have something that I think is true and I need to tell it to you. The universe is meaningless. I think that's true and I want to tell it to you is asserting some kind of truth. But Tr- I want to make meaning. <laughs> and like, well, truth must exist. If that's oh. true, then truth must exist. So it, nihilism kind of eats its own tail. Yeah. I'm because perfect. to assert that n- nothing is true or meaningful is a true statement of meaning. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, so there's the existence of this, the act of communication is like, you know, from that, he is our distant kin. Like over the decades and over the miles, he wants to tell the world something. Yeah, and I I think he would agree with us because there's that really cool part where they arrive at the station and they find, or they're almost at the station, they find a book, first book he's Marla's seen in a while. And it's just a book about, um, what's it called? Yeah, it's like this mechan- An Inquiry into Some Points of Seamanship by a Man, Towser, Towson, some such name. <laughs> yeah, like a pointless technical book. Master in His Majesty's Navy. So it's a completely pointless, outdated book, but he's really moved by it. And, um, and he says, I slipped the book into my pocket. I assure you, to leave off reading was like tearing myself away from the shelter of an old and solid friendship. So I feel like he's making a little subtle argument here about how books are just that. They can be that, and an act of faith that maybe I can make meaning. Even a pointless, seemingly pointless book written by somebody who cared. I can see somebody reacting to your comment saying, well, he's homesick for, quote-unquote, the safe, normal, white culture, you know what I mean? Right. And <clears throat> but yeah, that could be part of it. Could be part of it. But also, it's, it's, it's equally possible that what he's responding to in this book is the world can't be meaningless because somebody wrote a book about knot tying, how to tie the best knots on a boat. You know what I mean? Like, exactly. We must take care in the things that we do, otherwise... Things go to hell. Yes. It's an attempt at order. It's an attempt at order, precisely. Mm-hmm. I also, I know we've talked so long now, but say something about the cannibals. Oh, the cannibals. <laughs> I quite, it's going so long, but I, I'm going to nominate them as another source of light and, and positive worldview because yeah, they have a code, you know, they have a way of life that isn't anarchic. They don't just eat any human in sight. No. <laughs> Marla wonders. I wonder why they haven't eaten me yet, even though they're so hungry. No, but they—it's like they're—they're they're starving, and they—they uh-huh. they don't just indiscriminately slaughter and consume any human that they meet. Yeah, they do this presumably ritualistically or as part of you know ancient customs. Uh-huh. So it's like this code that's developed over many centuries, many years that they live by, that they stick to, even to great personal cost and sacrifice. Mm-hmm. It gives them a source of order and meaning. So it's this other, that's that's their book of seamanship. You know, that's their knots. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm trying to say? Like, yeah. they have found a way to live in the world with order, through some kind of order. Right. And especially to somebody in England at the time, reading about cannibals, they would assume that they were the a symbol for chaos, right? That's right. But they sacrifice their own health and comfort for these total strangers. That's who right. have come to strip their jungle of all of its resources, you know what I mean? Yeah, they could have easily Fine. they could have easily at least killed Marlowe and his crew, but they didn't. They seem to know how to live in the world, I guess is what I'm saying. I mean, we don't really know More much about than them. The English. Yes, at least that's that we don't we can't say much about them, but we can at least say that. Yes. <laughs> they know how to live in the world much better than Marlowe and Kurtz and anyone on that boat shelling the jungle for no reason. My goodness, last words? I think it's a beautiful, absolutely beautiful, and very strangely hopeful book. 
It's one of those books. There's a reason why it's assigned again and again and again in classrooms. This is a, has been our longest podcast. You can't stop. <laughs> can't. There's n- no bottom. There's no end to what could be said about this. It proves more than most other texts how much meaning can be packed into a story or made out of language. Mm-hmm. This novella inspired one of the most famous poems of literary modernism, T.S. Eliot's The Hollow Men, which I'd like to read as the poem of the day. It's in five short sections, and as one of its epigraphs, uses the quote from Heart of Darkness in which the death of Mr. Kurtz is announced by the boy, Mr. Kurtz, he dead. The Hollow Men by T.S. Eliot. We are the hollow men. We are the stuffed men leaning together, headpiece filled with straw. Alas, our dried voices, when we whisper together, are quiet and meaningless as wind in dry grass, or rat's feet over broken glass in our dry cellar. Shape without form, shade without color, paralyzed force, gesture without motion, those who have crossed with direct eyes to death's other kingdom. Remember us, if at all, not as lost, violent souls, but as the hollow men, the stuffed men. 2. Eyes I dare not meet in dreams, in death's dream kingdom, these do not appear. There the eyes are sunlight on a broken column, there is a tree swinging, and voices are in the winds singing, more distant and more solemn than a fading star. Let me be no nearer in death's dream kingdom. Let me also wear such deliberate disguises, rat's coat, crow skin, crossed staves in a field, behaving as the wind behaves, no nearer. Not that final meeting in the twilight kingdom. 3. This is the dead land. This is the cactus land. Here the stone images are raised. Here they receive the supplication of a dead man's hand under the twinkle of a fading star. It is like this in death's other kingdom, walking alone at the hour when we are trembling with tenderness. Lips that would kiss form prayers to broken stone. 4. The eyes are not here. There are no eyes here in this valley of dying stars, in this hollow valley, this broken jaw of our lost kingdoms. In this last of meeting places we grope together and avoid speech, gathered on this beach of this tumid river, sightless unless the eyes reappear as the perpetual star, multifoliate rose of death's twilight kingdom, the hope only of empty men. 5. Here we go round the prickly pear, prickly pear, prickly pear. Here we go round the prickly pear at five o'clock in the morning. Between the idea and the reality, between the motion and the act, falls the shadow. For thine is the kingdom. Between the conception and the creation, between the emotion and the response, falls the shadow. Life is very long. 
between the desire and the spasm, between the potency and the existence, between the essence and the descent, falls the shadow. For thine is the kingdom. For thine is, life is, for thine is the... This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but with a whimper. That's it for now. I hope you enjoyed it. I think Claire and I will be reading Macbeth next. In the meantime, I hope you enjoy listening. Mm-hmm.